Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Circle Opens, a podcast devoted to a chapter-by-chapter review of Stephen King's The Stand. Do you need an affordable source for Stephen King books, movies, collectibles, and more? Make sure to visit Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Listeners of this podcast can use the coupon code THECIRCLE for 20% off their order anytime, and there's always free shipping to the United States. That's secondhandbookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Welcome back, everyone. I am Sarah, and thank you for joining me this week on our journey through the stand. As always, I hope everyone is doing well and staying safe. Before we jump into Chapter 57, I just want to take a quick moment to say thank you to everybody who has reached out to me in the past week, uh, either through email or um, through the website, thecircleopens.com. I truly do appreciate uh, every single email and comment, uh, even if it's been just feedback on the podcast or questions about the book. Um, It's been great. I love hearing from fans of Stephen King and especially, of course, fans of The Stand. (laughs) So thank you guys for reaching out to me. Um, I do apologize if it takes me a few days or longer to get back to you. That is not by design, I promise. I would blame it on my mom brain having three kids kind of, you know, I'll read an email and plan to respond. And then I think I respond and then I realize I didn't respond. (laughs) So I am truly sorry if there is a delay in my response to you, but I do get your emails. I do get your comments and they are fantastic. Thank you guys so much. If you are enjoying this podcast, um, it would be fabulous if you'd leave me a rating on Apple Podcasts. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to everybody who's already done so. You're all amazing. I truly do appreciate it. And it does help get the podcast noticed a bit more. So Okay, so with that out of the way, I think it's time to recap Chapter 56. A doctor, George Richardson, has finally arrived in Boulder, but with him comes the news that he had delivered twins 10 days earlier and they had both died, perhaps of the superflu. Unfortunately, they can't know for sure because the bereaved mother buried the twins in an unknown location before the doctor could perform any kind of autopsy. Nadine goes back to her old house to get a few things, and she finds Leo there, although he seems to have reverted a bit back to when he was Joe. Nadine is scared of him and tries to blame her actions on Larry, but Leo does not respond. Uh, He merely watches her, which causes Nadine to flee. At a public meeting, Stu is voted in as marshal of the Free Zone, and a representative government committee is formed which leads the free zone to realize that the judge is gone. Dana Jurgens and Tom Cullen both leave the free zone to head west, and it's revealed that Harold is building a dynamite bomb to set off during the free zone committee's next meeting, which will be held on September 2nd. So in Chapter 57, Larry and Leo are sitting together in front of their house while Lucy mows the lawn. Lucy had asked Larry to talk to Leo, who has regressed a bit towards his Joe persona. She tells Larry that Nadine had come by wanting to talk to Leo, although she had called him Joe. As Larry and Leo talk, it becomes clear that Leo has some form of telepathy. He mentions that Dick Ellis thinks he's too old to have babies with Lori Constable, but Leo thinks they'll be able to have some anyway. And Larry knows that Dick is not the kind of guy to discuss such things with a young boy, so he decides to test his theory about Joe's telepathy. Yes, Leo knew things, or intuited them. 
He hadn't wanted to go in Harold's house and had said something about Nadine. He couldn't remember exactly what. But Larry had recalled that discussion and had felt very uneasy when he heard that Nadine had moved in with Harold. It had been as if the boy was in a trance, as if Leo had gone to see the elephant. And of course, that's a bit of a throwback to when they put Tom Cullen under hypnosis. They told him, you know, would you like to see an elephant? Which put Tom under his own trance, and he had been able to tell them things that no one else had known or should be able to know. So I guess Tom and Leo are kind of connected a little bit by both of them harboring some of the shine. So he mentions Cary Grant, Larry does, about how he had been a little bit older when he had another child. And when Leo asks who that is, Larry thinks about the movies that Cary Grant has been in. Movies that Leo suddenly mentions out loud. And now that he's sure Leo will be able to give him truthful answers, he asks how Nadine Mom is. And Leo says that she calls him Joe, but that it's bad. She and Harold are planning to go west to him. And he has fooled them into thinking that he wants them. Larry asks who he is, and Leo says him. It's very obvious that he means the dark man, Randall Flagg. Leo says, Nadine Mom wants to think it's your fault. She wants to think you drove her to Harold, but she waited on purpose. She waited until you loved Lucy Mom too much. She waited until she was sure. It's like he's rubbing away the part of her brain that knows right from wrong. Little by little, he's rubbing that part away. And when it's gone, she'll be as crazy as everyone else in the West. Crazier, maybe. Of course, this kind of freaks Larry out. <laughs> but Leo tells Larry that Nadine mom is dead. And it seems like Leo wants to say more. But he tells Larry to talk to Franny. The committee will not help. The committee cannot help. He has to talk to Fran. Leo seems to come out of his trance. And Larry knows what he has to do. So Larry and Franny finally talk, and Franny tells Larry everything that has happened with Harold since they were both in a gun quit. So she told him, beginning with the day in June, that Harold had driven into the driveway of her gun quit home in Roy Brannigan's Cadillac. She told him about the sign on the barn roof and how she had been sleeping when Harold risked his life to put her name on the bottom, about meeting Stu and Fabian and about Harold's shrill, get-away-from-my-bone reaction to Stu. She told him about her diary, about the thumbprint in it. By the time she finished, it was past nine o'clock, and the crickets were singing. A silence fell between them, and Fran waited apprehensively for Larry to break it. But he seemed lost in thought. So Larry asks Fran if she's sure that it was Harold's thumbprint in her diary, and he also reveals that... If you guys remember, originally, when he and Fran first talked, he told her that he had seen Harold's initials carved into the barn. Um, but what he hadn't told her was that it had been his initials plus Fran's initials in a heart. So he finally tells her about that now. And of course, Fran kind of blames herself for this mess, but it is not her fault. She believes that Harold may have a killing grudge against Stu, but she can't tell anyone her suspicions because everyone seems to like Harold, including Larry. Larry begins to realize that maybe Harold has been keeping a diary like Fran because he saw a ledger 
underneath a loose hearthstone in Harold's house, and Fran immediately knows which stone he is talking about because she had sat on it just before Nadine arrived at Harold's house and scared Fran into leaving quickly before she could investigate further. So the two of them make plans to break into Harold and Nadine's house the next day to look for this ledger, figuring it will either confirm their suspicions or prove there is nothing to worry about at all. That next day, Brad Kitchener, with the help of Stu, Ralph, Nick, and a fellow named Jack Johnson, turns on two trial generators. The generator supplied power to a small section of North Boulder, at least briefly, because the generators begin to overheat, and Brad has to quickly turn them off, though he is ecstatic about the progress. He realizes that as people got sick and died or fled Boulder, they did not turn off their appliances, meaning that there are televisions, ovens, radios, and more still plugged in and turned on all across Boulder. They will need a work crew of a dozen or so to go around and turn off appliances and houses as to keep things from catching fire or exploding. Stu invites Brad to the committee meeting the following night to explain to everybody what he needs the crews for, which I thought that was kind of funny. (laughs) Just give him 12 guys to go around and turn off these appliances. Like, why does it have to (laughs) go in front of the committee? But that's government for you. So (laughs) Fran and Larry... They meet in a park across from Harold's house that afternoon. They come up with a reasonable excuse as to why they're there in case Nadine happens to be home, although they're pretty convinced that she's gone because she's been helping with the power station, and Harold is gone because he is still working on the burial crew. By now, they find out that Harold has locked the cellar door that Fran first used to sneak into his house, but Larry doesn't care. (laughs) He breaks the window, and the two enter. Larry is not worried about being caught, considering what they know now about Harold. Larry says, if he doesn't have anything to hide, he'll think it was just a couple of kids breaking windows in empty houses. It sure looks empty, with all the shades pulled down. And if he does have something to hide, it'll worry him plenty, and he deserves to be worried. Inside the house, they see the air hockey table, littered with snippets of electrical wire as well as the empty box of walkie-talkies, though they're not entirely sure what they're for. Larry dropped the box back onto the floor and made what he would later think of as the most wildly erroneous statement of his entire life. It doesn't matter, he said. Let's go. They continue up the stairs, and they find the ledger under the loose hearthstone. Harold had moved it, remember, but Nadine had moved it back to its original hiding place. Larry begins to read some of Harold's mottos and quotes, such as, It is said that the two great human sins are pride and hate, are they? I like to think of them as the two great virtues. To give away pride and hate is to say you will change for the good of the world. To vent them is more noble, that is to say the world must change for the good of you. I am on a great adventure. And Fran thinks that that's the work of a profoundly disturbed mind. And yet they really don't think much of his writing until they go straight to the first page. And the first page, it reads, My great pleasure this delightful post-apocalyptic summer will be to kill Mr. Stuart Dogcock Redman. And just maybe I will kill her too. This immediately has them decide that they are going to take the ledger to show Stu, and they agree that even if Harold isn't going west, 
This is the work of a disturbed mind. So while Fran and Larry are breaking into Harold and Nadine's home, Nadine is breaking into Ralph and Nick's. Although I suppose I can't really say she's breaking in because Ralph does not lock his doors. She does find that he's gone. And after a bit of exploration, she realizes Nick is gone as well, although she did have an excuse ready should he be there. After a quick search through the house, she finds a cluttered closet to hide the box in. And when she leaves, Nadine struggles with her conscience again. She left the house quickly, not looking back, trying to ignore the voice that wouldn't stay dead. The voice that was now telling her to go back in there and pull the wires that ran between the blasting caps and the walkie-talkie. Telling her to give this up before it drove her mad. Because wasn't that what was really lying somewhere up ahead? Now, maybe less than two weeks ahead? Wasn't madness the final logical conclusion? Just as she decides to go back and get the bomb, Nadine is overcome with darkness, and she feels flag creep inside of her. It's hard for her to describe how it feels. You're swimming and suddenly, in the midst of the warm water, you're treading water in a pocket of deep, numbing cold. You've been given Novocaine, and the dentist pulls a tooth, It comes out with a painless tug. You spit blood into the white enamel basin. There's a hole in you. You've been gouged. You can slip your tongue into the hole where part of you was living a second ago. You stare at your face in the mirror. You stare at it for a long time. Five minutes, ten, fifteen. No fair blinking. You watch with an intellectual sort of horror as your face changes, like the face of Law and Cheney Jr. in a werewolf epic. You become a stranger to yourself, an olive-skinned doppelganger, a psychotic vampira with pale skin and fish-slit eyes. It was really none of those things, but there was a taste trace of all of them. The dark man entered her, and he was cold. When she opens her eyes again, she is no longer at the end of Ralph's street, but at the abandoned drive-in. She glanced toward the white and saw it was a huge blank drive-in movie screen against a background of white late afternoon rainy sky. Turning around, she saw the snack bar. It was painted a garish flesh-toned pink. Written across the front was Welcome to the Holiday Twin. Enjoy entertainment under the stars tonight. The darkness had come to her at the intersection of Baseline and Broadway. Now she was far out on 28th Street, almost over the town line to Longmont. There was a taste of him in her still, far back in her mind, like cold slime on a floor. She asks out loud why she's there, but she's not really expecting an answer. However, she gets one. The speakers fall from the speaker poles at once and then blare with Flag's voice. She has to cover her ears, screaming at the voice to stop, and she thinks that she has finally gone crazy. But not yet because the voice comes again. He tells her that they know. Flag says, you've been stupid. God may love stupidity. I do not. Stupid, she thought. Stupid, stupid. I know what that word means, I think. I think it means death. But Flag says they know everything, except the shoebox, the dynamite. He tells her, go to Sunrise Amphitheater. Stay there until tomorrow night, until they meet 
and then you and Harold may come. Come to me. Nadine realizes that she and Harold need to leave Boulder quickly. And as she's driving away, the speakers blare again, singing, I'll be seeing you. And Flag tells her to do well. Do well, Nadine. Do well, my fancy, my dear one. Nadine waits for Harold at the bus station, where the burial committee convenes. He is shocked when he sees her, and he mentions her hair, but Nadine doesn't hear him. She tells him that they've found his ledger, and they took it. Harold asks who took it, but Nadine says she doesn't know. Probably Fran Goldsmith, maybe Larry or Glenn. It doesn't matter. All that matters is they know. Infuriated, Harold asks how she knows because he remembers that she put the ledger back under the loose hearthstone. But Nadine says that he told her, Flag. Harold is stunned and he says, Flag told you, and it did that. He turns her towards a window to show Nadine that her hair had gone completely white. Not one strand of black was left. She stares at herself for a long time before telling Harold that they have to leave town. But until then, they would hide. Harold says, maybe I don't want to anymore. He was still looking at her hair. She put his hand on it. Too late, Harold, she said. So this is a relatively short chapter, but it is a very effective one. There is no filler here. First, while we already saw hints of it, we finally get confirmation that Leo has a bit of the shine, some telepathy. But like Tom, it seems that Leo has to be in a sort of a trance in order to really tap into the ability and tell others about it. He's able to deduce that Dick Ellis and Lori Constable are trying for a baby, but Dick fears that maybe he's too old. And he can pick up Larry's thoughts about Cary Grant, and he knows that Nadine and Harold are going to go west to flag. It seems that Leo may know even more than that. Perhaps he knows about the dynamite, or maybe that something bad is going to happen, even if he doesn't know what. So he sends Larry to talk to Fran, because she and Larry have both been in Harold's house. They both noticed the loose hearthstone, and Fran has known that Harold read her diary. So she's had suspicions about Harold since they arrived in Boulder. Not to mention the fact that it seems like, you know, Fran knows Harold better than anybody else in the free zone. So Larry does speak to Fran. He takes that responsibility. He doesn't ignore it. He goes to her and together they come to the conclusion that the ledger that Larry saw under the hearthstone was Harold's. And perhaps there's something in there that will tip them off to his plans. Of course, Larry and Fran have to break in. um, Something Larry doesn't care about, which is great. They do find the ledger, which I find to be really interesting because in the last chapter, it's mentioned that after reading it, Nadine had replaced it, quote, carelessly, unquote, beneath the hearthstone again. So even though Harold had moved it to the attic, aware that it could be found or maybe had, well, he he knew that it hadn't been found because if it had by Fran, she would have sounded the alarm by then. But he knows that keeping it under that hearthstone was a stupid idea. So... Was Nadine's carelessness a subconscious decision? Maybe she knew it was possible that it would be found again, or maybe it was really just a stupid decision on her part and something she wasn't really even thinking about. So they find the ledger, and of course, there's nothing too crazy inside that they see right away. 
but for some quotes that Fran does find disturbing. That is until they hit page one and they see Harold's written plan to kill Stu and maybe Fran. And that is enough for Larry to decide to take the ledger to Stu. And it seems as though maybe Harold and Nadine's plan will be thwarted. But while Larry and Fran are taking the ledger, Nadine is at Ralph's house planting Harold's bomb. Of course, Ralph doesn't lock the doors because why should they? Why does he need to? Everyone in the free zone is quote unquote good aren't they? At least most of them. And there's no need for anyone to break into someone else's house anymore because, again, anything you might want or need is yours for the taking anywhere else. Nadine looks around to make sure that Nick isn't there. And once she's sure she's alone, she does hide the bomb in a closet. And yet another crisis of conscience strikes her as she rides away on her Vespa. Hadn't she always said that the worst crime in the post-plague world would be murder, to take another life when so many had been taken already. So was she really going to do this? She makes the choice. She makes that decision to go back and take the bomb and maybe end it once and for all. But Flag has other plans. He has clearly been keeping an eye on her, and he feels her turning away from him. So he enters her, and takes her away from Ralph's house to the abandoned drive-in, which I remember was mentioned when Ralph drove Tom away from his house in North Boulder. And it's there that he speaks to her through the speakers, telling her that they know. They know what is happening, and Flag is not happy because Nadine has been stupid, and he does not forgive stupidity. This frightens Nadine, but Flag gives her another chance. He tells her to get Harold and wait at Sunrise Amphitheater, where he had first spoken to her through her planchette. After they detonate the bomb, they can go west to him. So Nadine takes off, and she's scared, but she knows what she has to do now. And of course, Flag wants to scare her. She had been about to ruin his plans, so he tells her that they know Even if Nadine had decided to take the bomb back, Larry and Fran know about the ledger. They know that Harold and Nadine are ready to go west. So Nadine could be rejected. She could be banished, maybe even jailed. She has no option now to stay. She has no option to take that bomb and try to end the madness. Flag is still welcoming her despite her mistakes. He still wants her. Larry doesn't want her. The Free Zone probably would not want her after discovering what they did at Harold's house. So she has no other choice. She listens to him and she goes to Harold. And she explains to Harold that they found the ledger, probably Fran for sure, and they have to get their things and go. They'll head west after the September 2nd committee meeting after doing what Flag wants them to do. Harold is struck by the fact that Nadine's hair has gone completely white. Her descent into madness is nearly complete. Harold sees what Flag has done to her, to her hair, and he wonders that maybe he doesn't want to go west now. But like Nadine says, it's too late. They have the ledger and the bomb is planted. It's way too late to turn back. And I find it interesting that Harold himself has some doubts just seeing what Flag is capable of by speaking through Nadine. Just speaking to her has turned her hair completely white. That's how traumatic it is. 
Is he sure he wants to align himself with a man like that? Either way, his choice has already been made. And as a little aside in this chapter, Brad Kitchener and the others are able to get the generators working in North Boulder, but of course it begins to overload due to all the electricity coming in at once, so of course they have to go shut off the power. And while it may be a little discouraging, Brad is excited because he knows if they go around and turn off all the appliances that were left on when people died or ran away, the generators will not overheat the next time they hit those switches. So Brad needs a crew. So Stu invites him to the committee meeting on September 2nd to talk to the committee about his needs. And we find out Chad Norris also plans to be there. He's the head of the burial committee. So Fran and Larry now have Harold's dangerous ledger. They're taking it to Stu. Nadine has already planted the bomb in Ralph's home. So what is going to happen first? Will Stu and the committee be able to find Harold and Nadine before they're able to detonate that bomb? Or will Nadine and Harold carry out their deadly plans before the committee has a chance to really discuss what to do about the ledger? We finally find out um, Endgame here in Chapter 58, and it is quite the chapter. So I'm really excited to uh, jump into that one. That one's going to be a tense chapter to discuss. And this is a short episode, you guys. That's it for this episode of The Circle Opens. This chapter was very quick, very straightforward. It's finally laying the groundwork, and we're finally going to get next week the payoff um, of the committee, their plans, Harold and Nadine's plans, and there might be some bloodshed, you guys, but we're going to have to wait and see until next week. If you would like to get in touch with me, you can send me an email at thecirclecloses at gmail.com, or you can find me on social media at The Circle Opens. You can also find me at thecircleopens.com. Um, it is my blog for the podcast and for The Stand. I've been working on it quite a bit, so you'll find a whole lot of stuff there about the book, about the miniseries, about Stephen King. Um, I've also been posting my Stephen King book reviews on thecircleopens.com. I recently just posted my review of my first read of Duma Key, which I absolutely loved. I'm very upset with myself that it took me so long to read Duma Key. It was amazing. Um, I believe it slipped right into my King Top 10. Um, so if you guys are interested, hit thecircleopens.com. You can read my review there, along with quite a few other King novel reviews. And I think that's it, you guys, for this week. I hope everybody is staying safe out there things are crazy. Please take care of yourselves and your families. And M-O-O-N, that spells, I will see you next week. 